0: I had a chat with one of our Bible readers last week. Um, uh, Mark, this is no reflection on your Bible reading, by the way. Thank you for reading that to us. Um, But uh, I I feel like a whole bunch of our Bible readers... you know, we, we are not a, an overly liturgical church uh, in the way that we do things. And, and I think many of our Bible readers have come from slightly more liturgical traditions than us and get to the end of a Bible reading and have the urge to say, this is the word of the Lord, and then go, oh, maybe I shouldn't do that here. And uh, look, let me just open the slider and say, that's not be- going to become our official liturgy, but it's okay to say this is the word of the Lord. Uh, or if you like, my preferred version is, these are God's words. Um, is a good thing to say, because we we get to come to God's word as we do this. Isn't that amazing that we get to read the words of our God? You know, I loved it when Catherine asked before, you know, how did they all know what to write and how to connect with each other? And, And one of the kids just goes, God told them, you know, like, and, you know, it might not be as simple as, in every single case, God going, okay, now write this, and then write that, and that. But these are God's words, verbally, God's words, every one of them, God's words. Isn't that amazing? Would you pray with me as we come to the words of our God? God, be glorified today and lift yourself up. Let us see the goodness of our Lord. Let us see the goodness of Jesus. Who was slain for us, who ransomed us and a people from every tribe and tongue of nation. Lord, be honored today and change us as we see who you are, as we behold you. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, let me just add a little invitation, I'm not sure if it got said, but um, if you don't have a Bible there and open with you, uh, feel free to grab one, there is a stack on the shelf back there as there always is, kind of between the two communion tables. Uh, we are in Revelation chapter 5, uh, but uh, let, me, let me ask, do you ever find yourself longing for someone to fix the world and your life and to make it right? Come on, tell me there's one person here who doesn't relate to that at some level. Uh, Like I said, we're in in Revelation 5 today. Last week we said that chapters 4 and 5 are a unit. They work together. They work together to present a vision of what is most truly true, of of the, the central, ultimate reality that underpins all other truth, all other reality. And the truest truth, The central truth, the central reality of every reality that is, is found in the throne room of God. There is a throne above all of creation, is what we saw in chapter 4. There is one seated on the throne who is glorious and majestic, who is judge of the earth, who is holy, 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 and worthy to receive honour and glory and power. And we have the immense privilege of being invited in, into the truest truth, into the central reality, and to join the heavenly chorus of worship towards him. And, and, and it's possible that you came out of last week um, <clears throat> maybe a little confused, maybe a little baffled, because it can be hard to reconcile that image that reality, the ultimate reality, with the seen reality around us here, right? Um, To reconcile that there is one on the throne of all that is and that he is good with the fact that we look around and there is such suffering, such sorrow, such struggles and such sin. You know, the tension, it kind of births two questions for me. Um, How... How right now can God be sovereign in the midst of such suffering? You know, when when bad things are happening, how can his sovereignty be a reality presently? And is there a way that he's going to make it right? Is there a way that God will have victory and all of creation will be made genuinely, powerfully, perfectly good and right? You know, like I said, do you ever or often maybe find yourself looking at the world around you and just wishing that someone would come in and fix up this mess? We need a maid in here, you know, like make it right. Um, From as large and cosmic a scale as you want to as small and personal a scale as you want, this is something that we run into, isn't it, on a day-to-day basis, whether you're a believer in Jesus or not, uh, this is a question we all run into, the, the, the realisation that someone needs to make this right. You know, it can, be, it can be large scale. We'll look a little bit at the large scale later on, but, you know, it can be when we, when we look at the brokenness of the world and of governments and of institutions and just wish that someone would come in and fix this mess. It can also be small and personal. And when I say small, it doesn't feel small to us. You know, but there, there are ways that we keep running into this. Um, and there are too many to list, but let me, let me give it a crack. You know, the, the longing for someone or something to make our world right, to complete us and to do away with our worries and our fears and our struggles, comes to us every day. We, we long for something that is perfect. Something that will satisfy us and leave the world not feeling wrong. You know, C.S. Lewis, uh, you might know him from the Narnia books, but he's written a few others. Um, in his autobiography, Surprised by Joy, he, he writes about when he was just six years old, and he remembers um, sitting in his nursery, looking out the window. He had a nursery, because six-year-olds had a nursery back then. And uh, uh, he was sitting, and he's looking out his nursery window, and he would look out, and, and, well, here's what he writes. He says, every day there was what we called the green hills. Love that title. It's like... It's, uh, this idealised paradise title, the Green Hills. That is, the, the low line of the Castle Ray Hills, which we saw from the nursery windows. They were not very far off, but they were, to children, quite unattainable. They taught me longing. Elsewhere, he, uh, he calls it an intense longing for things transcendent. We long for something or someone who can make our world right, who can complete us, complete this world from, from the heart out, right? I feel like I've, I've spent this week getting a, a crash course in, in how this works, um, in, in what it means to intensely long that this world would be made right, um, that someone would come in and fix the mess that I've had to wade through this week. Um, it felt completely powerless to fix, um, you know, it's amazing, you know, you, you go and get a nursing degree and you, you practice for a whole bunch of time and, and this gives you just enough to realise that really I can't do anything, you know. Um, I've just been praying that, you know, I so appreciate that so many people have been praying um, for it to be right. You know, perhaps you look at your own situation sometimes. And even though your situation's not my situation, right? I don't think many of us have gone through the same thing this week. Still, you have a similar feeling. You have that same conviction that this isn't right. This isn't good. This isn't how it's meant to be. Or this isn't how it's supposed to go. And you have that same desire that someone would fix this mess of a life and this mess of a world. We do this from our youngest years through to our oldest years. We keep running into it. Let me give you an example from the younger years. We won't, we won't go right to the very beginning of the younger years. Uh, I, d- I don't have a clear memory of that one, um, but though we could. But, uh, you know, I'm, I'm young enough, I think, <laughs> to have a decent enough memory, at least of how school felt from my perspective. Um, you know, now, now we do different approaches to school here, that's all right, but, but you know, my memory of a especially um, middle school and high school, actually, if I can be specific, is one of near-constant self-consciousness. Uh, <laughs> um, I, a near-constant fear of doing something dumb, unintentionally dumb, let's be clear. I did some intentionally dumb things. That's different. But, um, but unintentionally dumb, which would make my peers look at me in a worse light, terrified of that, you know? Um, I think at the root of that was it was a desire to have approval from others, to be made right by the approval of others, uh, a longing to be loved, a longing to be admired. And although I probably wouldn't have said it at the time, there was a level at which I believed that if I was cool... That was a bit Queensland, wasn't it? Cool. If I was admired, if I was loved by my peers, well, then the world would be right, you know? Then it would be made right. So I was looking at my world, you know, school kids, is this, is this relatable? I don't know. It, it, I was looking at my world and wishing that I could make it right by being cool, and, and also wishing that my peers could make it right by affirming it, you know, by affirming me. Now, now, if you knew me when I was young, you would know how catastrophically I failed in this mission, uh, by the way. You're right to laugh, Jackie. Um, no. But the more I look back, the more I, um, I think that there is a connection there with everyone's experience. And maybe, maybe no one really succeeds. Perhaps no one failed quite as catastrophically as me. But, but you know, I look back at my grade in school, for instance, um, you know, here at MDS. And I see a, a group of, of kind of 30 or so kids who were all trying really hard to have a life that felt right all desperately pursuing completion, or, and I think all coming up short in the end. You know, w- whether they communicated that on the outside or not. Like, if you'd looked at me on the outside, you wouldn't have seen someone who was saying, hey, I really feel like I need affirmation. You would have seen someone who was trying to put up a cool front, right, But and failing. But, you know, whether it was being pursued through um, party culture and drugs, uh, alcohol or whatever... Um, whether, whether it was pursued through self-righteousness, uh, whether it was pursued through a desperate pursuit of body image. You know, I think of, I think of the culture of the girls in my class. I, I feel awful for any girl who goes to our school system, um, and I feel terrified for my daughter at times. Um, you know, it was scary. I mean, especially for a teenage boy looking in from the outside, it was scary, but, um, but there seemed to be this desperate fight and this has been affirmed in conversations with the women I know who have gone through this. This desperate fight for approval through body image seemed to be a really prevalent thing. Um, you know, I'm male. Uh, you've, you've probably noticed that. My understanding of this is a little bit limited. But, but it seems to me that all of those young women who were fighting for this approval communicated by the way that they did that that they had failed that it was never enough, that the goalposts kept shifting in front of them, It was that it was, oh, yeah, if you just get to this point, and then and what? what no, you need to go a bit further. You see, all of those people, though, from, from the partiers to the, to the prettiers to the athletes to the nerds such as myself, um, everyone was looking for the world to be made right, by their own definition of it, certainly, but looking for that. And, and most were seeking that in the, in the approval of others. What about the other end of life, right? we got a few of those here, um, depending on how you define that. You know, I don't want to be offensive to anyone. Um, uh, I do a little bit, but it's because it's fun. Um, thank you, Sue. I'm For the recording, Sue said, I'll get there one day, God willing. Uh, I'm not yet old enough to know from personal experience what the latter years of life are like. I like to think, I, maybe I... I, I hold myself up a bit high, but I think 35 is not quite there. Um, As a nurse, I've had plenty of exposure, though. (laughs) Um, And exposure to this rhythm. Um, Many, many, we will get to the the scripture, by the way. Many, many people spend their life thinking that they will get to a certain age. I would say the majority of people in our culture spend their life thinking they'll get to a certain age. And at that age, they will retire. and, and, And at last they will be able to enjoy themselves, you know, they'll be able to be the boss, they, they'll be able to pick where they live, what they do, where they travel, and then the world will be made right, they'll be the golden years, right, isn't that what we call them? Uh, but so many times people, Ayo, hey, back me up here, people get to the age of retirement, not because you're old, because you're a doctor, um, or they get to a few years in, and they encounter the painful reality that their bodies aren't able to live the life, that, that, that carefree life that they wanted. You know, like how many people, okay, how many people do you know who have moved to your town, no matter what your town is in the York Peninsula, if you're in the town or the one nearest to you? People who have moved there to retire because they're like, this is going to be the life. And then they get about 10 years in and they're like, I need to move back to the city because like there's the healthcare services and my knees are giving out. and, like, Do you know that almost exactly 80% of Australians have, at age 65 and up, have at least one chronic condition? And and more than 50% of the the people aged 65 and up have two or more. I've seen this personally so many times. People had hope for the golden years, but then the hope is dashed out from beneath them by their own body. And as you lay in bed at night, unable to sleep due to the pain in your knees, you find yourself wishing that someone could make this right that someone would fix this mess. So we return to our question, how, right now, can God be sovereign in the midst of such suffering and difficulty? Is there a way that he will make it right? And as we enter chapter 5 of the Revelation, we immediately begin to see this answered in the most beautiful way. John says, Come with me, we're in 5 verse 1. He says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. God has a plan. This scroll, it's obviously important, right? Like, John has put it in a very... Well, Jesus, in the vision, has put it in a very important place. Smack bang in both the literary and literal centre of the vision. At the intersection of chapters 4 and 5, we run into this scroll. And sitting in the right hand, the hand of authority of the one who has all authority, we just found out in chapter 4... Uh, The one seated on the throne of all of creation is this scroll. Uh, Daryl Johnson is helpful on this. He says, um, Deb, skip me a slide, will you? Um, He says, it is the scroll of history. It contains God's plan for establishing God's rule in the world. It contains God's plan for bringing the original purpose of creation to fulfilment. It contains God's plan for bringing the kingdom of heaven to earth. It contains the meaning of history, of world history, of your history, of my history. In short, the scroll contains the answer to the question, how can it be made right? If you can open the scroll and do what's in the scroll, it will be right. Right? Now consider that for a moment. The scroll is God's complete plan from history. You know, the number seven, seven seals, a complete plan. Seven is a number of completion. We keep running into this in the book. And we're like, great, there's a plan, but wait, there's a problem. The angel asks, who is worthy to open the scroll and break the seals? And like, there's this comprehensive search of everywhere that you can think of, heaven and earth and under the earth. Comprehensive search is done throughout all of creation and no one is found who is worthy to open the scroll. Isn't this the question we're always asking that has been being asked throughout history from the very beginning, from, from the fall, right? Right? We talked a little at the start about how we are personally, a lot actually, about how we are personally seeking the answer to this, but ooh, I just got very loud. Hello. Sorry. That's on the recording. There you go. Um, it's, it's also a question that everyone has been asking in big ways, cosmic ways, or, or worldwide ways, or national ways, uh, since the fall. You know, who can make this right? Who will do good and make the world a good place? That's what we're asking when we say ask who is worthy to open the seals uh, open the scroll. Every time a new government elected is elected isn't this the question that we are asking will they make it right? Isn't isn't that the hope that builds up in nations when new leaders come to power? Haven't, haven't we seen this story again and again and again, that a terrible failure of a government or a dictator is overthrown by a leader or, or voted out by a, by a nation and the government that shows so much potential comes in and we wonder, will these guys make it right? Are they going to be better than the last one? Like, have you ever come to an election not wondering whether these guys are going to be better than the last one? Who is worthy to open the scroll? And like, sadly, it's our experience that again and again and again and again, that the answer is not, not him. The hopeful young leader ages. He or she faces the need for compromise on one, or, or, or one front or another, right? Uh, usually many. And slowly they're whittled down. The pre-election or pre-coup promise fails to eventuate. The humble young leader seems to end up living a very large life, uh, whilst, whilst the promises hang in the air, right? Slowly but inevitably, they become another example of what they rose up to throw down. Is it, does that not feel familiar to anyone? They, slowly but surely, their life answers the question, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? With a resounding, not him is just another part of what is wrong in the world, not the solution. No, he wasn't worthy to open the scroll or to make it right. Why do we, why do we ask yourself this, why do we constantly elect different governments? You know, yes, it's in our law, but we, someone put it there, right? Um, why do so many people change their mind every time we vote? Why don't we just elect the right guys and then just stick with them? The answer is really obvious, right? Because every time a government is elected, they promise to be the solution. And in the end, though there may be some good done, I'm not saying that government is inherently bad, but the longer they remain, the clearer it becomes it's not them. They weren't the ones. John says he began to weep loudly because there was no one found who was worthy no one can open the scroll no one can make it right so john weeps loudly he wails with sorrow you know like this 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 is such an emphatic moment like like john understands the meaning of this he collapses to the ground sobbing couldn't you weep with him some days there is a way for it all to be made right we've just seen this It can be made new. It can be good, lastingly, beautifully good. If only there was just one worthy to open the scroll. If there was just one who was able and yet not one was found in heaven or on earth or under the earth. He wasn't worthy and he wasn't worthy and she wasn't worthy. And they weren't worthy again and 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 again for all of history. He was not worthy to break the seals and open the scroll. Joe Biden can't do it. Donald Trump can't do it. Stephen Marshall couldn't do it. Peter Malinowskis can't do it. The Queen, Elizabeth II, couldn't do it, or the first, by the way. King Charles can't do it, First, second or third. You can't do it. I can't do it. You can't do it even just for yourself. Just to make your world right, you can't do. How often do we think that if I had the power, I'd get it right? You know, wow, they should have just done this. Like, isn't, isn't this the spirit of every football watcher ever? We just, we, um, I'm not having a go at footy here, but, but, but we were in the hospital with Owen last night and he's watching the, the, the World Cup on the telly. And, uh, and, and like, he does what everyone does when they watch and he goes, oh, come on! And, you know, like, I wouldn't have done it like that, but, but come <laughs> like these professional-grade athletes, I would have done better than you. Um, I'm not critiquing Owen, I think we all do that. And we do it when we look at governments, and we do it when we look at everything. We think, I would have done better. Isn't that what every helpful young politician thinks before his life cries out, not worthy? We're not strong enough, not smart enough, certainly not good enough. We're not worthy to break the seals and open the scroll. And, and, and the world stays broken if the seals stay intact. People still hurt people throughout history. People still steal from people. People still lie to people. We kill people. People still break other human beings and their souls for the sake of financial gain and personal gain. People let children die and suffer in order to wear nicer clothes people still promise a new world and deliver a new level of disappointment in the old world and and people still seek for it to be fixed in all of the wrong ways you know let's let's return to some of that stuff we talked about at the start when when you live for the approval of others you are in a personal way trying to give an answer to the question who is worthy who can make it right do you see if you could just meet the standard of beauty that your peers put forward, if you could just be cool enough in their eyes, have them look at you and say, wow, he is so awesome, or whatever word the kids are using these days. She is the coolest person I know. He fits in so well. Well, then my world would be right. But don't you see, that's just trying to use my scroll, my plan, To make it right, with me as the one who is worthy. And the problem is that it will not work and I am not worthy. Is anyone worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold. Look. Stop crying. Look. There is one. And what a one. Here we find another instance of something that keeps happening in the Revelation. Uh, John hears something and then he sees something. Uh, and, and the thing that he hears is the thing that he sees, but it doesn't look how he expects it to look. You remind, might remember that in chapter one. You know, he heard a voice that sounded like a trumpet and he turned and he saw the Son of Man in all of his glory. And here, one of the elders says to John, Weep no more. Behold, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Now, what do we expect him to see? Who is this one who alone among all that exists in all of history is worthy We expect him to turn and to see a conqueror, right? The the line of Judah is the tribe that the royal families of Israel come from. Uh, The the root of David is a royal messianic title. David is the conquering king of Old Testament Israel. He overcame the surrounding nations, establishing the kingdom of Israel firmly. We expect he will turn and see power and might and glory, and he does, but not how we think of it. John says, and between the throne, pause just on those little words there, between the throne, literal translation of those words is, in the middle of the throne. So, so at the centre of the throne, on the throne of God, in the middle of the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Do you see how much this jars our idea of greatness? What we see here in Jesus, the lamb, is in a real way that same tension that we've been talking about, right, since the beginning. How can God be sovereign in the midst of such suffering? The lamb is Absolute sovereignty and absolute suffering. John sees one who is great. This is beyond dispute, right? He says that the lamb has seven horns. Now, don't freak out. Remember, apocalyptic, imagery, symbolic, Seven is a number of completion. We've covered that. And the horn represents power and authority. So, so royal power and authority. Seven horns, complete power and authority this lamb has. This lamb is mighty. He has seven eyes, which John tells us are the seven spirits of God sent out into the, all the earth. Remember, God doesn't have seven spirits. It's the completion of the spirit the complete spirit of God, this one has the power and knowledge and wisdom of God himself, and yet he stands as a lamb slain. And that's the point. His his power and authority is exercised in this way. He is a slain lamb. Jesus said, for this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. To hear the authority in those words. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. His sovereignty is seen most in his suffering. With all authority and might, he lays down his life to save. And in so doing, he answers our second question. How will God make it right so that the suffering, sin, and sadness are no more? Because he is the slain lamb. Because he is, because he laid down his life, he's worthy. He and he alone can open the scroll. He and he alone can make it right. Remember in chapter 4, we said that, Um, that we're seeing here the constant worship that heaven and all of creation are taking part in, which we are always being invited into. And now notice in verse 8 that this song is not just representative of the heavenly powers and the whole of creation. It says that there that the 24 elders representing the whole of God's people, God's chosen people from all of time, they are pouring out bowls filled with the prayers of who? The saints. That's us, by the way. That's your prayers. So this heavenly worship that we're invited into, it is the cry of every prayerful heart. And this is it. Worthy, 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 worthy are you to take the scroll. To open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God. From every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Do you see the significance here? Do you see how earth shatteringly significant it is that the slain lamb is the only one who is worthy? Let me give you, let me give you, this is how we're going to finished today, we're going to, that might give you a bit too much hope for how quickly we're going to get through them but I'm going to give you three ways in which this changes everything for us. The slain lamb is the only one worthy to make it right on a cosmic level, number one. So we have good news to take out. You know, you you long for the world to be made right, and there is one, there is one and only one who is worthy to make it right, to fix this world. Do you see how significant the gospel is? Sometimes we focus so heavily on the personal ramifications of the gospel, kind of the, you know, get from hell to heaven card, um, that we forget the magnitude of what we're talking about here. Certainly, in the death and resurrection of Jesus, in his self-sacrificial love is the power to move you from death to life, from eternal condemnation to eternal joy, salvation and wonder. Don't picture clouds, picture the best party that ever was, by the way, uh, forever and so much more. But more than that, through his death, Jesus is the only one who can make it all right. We are to be a people who declare to the world that it is... We live in a world that is filled with the reality that someone's needed, that a plan is needed to fix this brokenness, And that always comes up empty, right? The world never finds an answer to that question. They always grasp one and then it always falls apart in their hands. Uh, It always tries new things and always discovers the dark, horrible reality of unworthy, unworthy, unworthy. They couldn't do it. That didn't work. And we carry the profound, unique, singular privilege of declaring that the lamb who was slain is worthy He is the solution to all of the problems in the world. Evangelism is so powerful and so glorious. The good news of the life, death and resurrection of Jesus is cosmically significant. It is the centre of all of creation. It is the middle of the throne of God at the centre of all that is. That is how important the news we have to share is. Second, the slain lamb. So first, you know, the slain lamb is the only one who can make it right cosmically. Second, the slain lamb is the only one who can make it right personally. Everyone's looking for what will make their lives right, right? You know, the, that intense longing for things transcendent that C.S. Lewis talked about uh, happens when we long for those beautiful hills that are just out of reach. And when a, when a teenager longs to be accepted and loved by their peers, and when a, when a retiree longs for both a good and enjoyable life and a good and enjoyable body at the same time. That longing that it would be right and that there would be one who would make it right is only ever fulfilled in Jesus. Do you hear the freedom of those words? You don't have to keep chasing the other things. Everyone spends their time slaving for gods that don't satisfy when you live for the approval of others, have you ever noticed how abrasive a God that is? You know, and I've I've mentioned our teens here today, right? But but people at every age do this. It's just that teens are the easy target because it you're less good at veiling it at your age. To be completely honest. When you live for the approval of others, you serve a God who is fickle and who always moves the goalposts in front of you. It's never enough. Even if you get it, it's never enough. You need to meet this standard of beauty. But wait, it's moved and now you need to meet it over here. Mums, let me encourage you, let your daughters... No, if that's something that you've struggled with, them and let, with and let them know that it's not something that has ever been able to satisfy you. Nice clothes aren't evil. Hooray. Makeup isn't evil. Jewelry isn't evil. They can be good things, but if you're using them to make it right, then, then just turn away. They're going to break you. You know, the lamb who was slain speaks a better truth. You have the approval of God the Father, not because of how you look, but because, of when, because when he looks on those who have given themselves to Jesus, he sees the perfection of Jesus. Isn't the gospel good news? Boys and men, no less than women, maybe more, we cling to the desire to impress our peers. You know, back me up again here, AO. how many injuries have we dealt with, right, from people who were trying to impress someone? <laughs> maybe even more so, we want to impress the cooler, older guys, often. Um, whether that's through doing stupid stuff with drugs or through uh, having the better knowledge of some specific thing or whatever, you know, we want to impress. We want to be better. But but hear the good news of the gospel here: all power, wealth, wisdom, might, honor, and glory and blessing, as we read here, belongs not to you but to Jesus. Belongs to the one who gave away one-upmanship and instead lowered himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You don't have to be the best. It's good news, right? You can't be. You can stand against the pressure of your peers because there is one who has won you what you need by his blood. You can strive for excellence, certainly, not because it will get you the approval that you want, but because there is one at the centre who is glorious, who is excellent, and who isn't you. And he calls you just to come and follow him, to make your glory for his glory. Third and final point of application here, right? And, And perhaps this is the main point that the persecuted churches that John was writing to were meant to take away from this. Certainly applicable to our lives. Um, and this is a challenging. The, the slain lamb ruling in victory shows us the path to victory for us. is selfless, sacrificial love. Think of what this meant for the original readers, right? The way to victory is not through lion living as we think of it. Victory comes to those who follow Jesus in giving themselves up. If he is the one who is at the center of all of reality, and he is a slain lamb at the center of all of reality, that is the way in. That is how you succeed. That's how you have victory. Victory comes to those who follow Jesus in giving themselves up. Those early Christians, they had to be willing to suffer if they were going to remain faithful to Jesus. To love your neighbour, even when your neighbour appears to have everything that you don't have, and even when your neighbour treats you as a second-rate citizen, is a hard calling. But this fills that suffering with meaning. That's not defeat. Look at Jesus. Jesus is the slain lamb. He's not defeated. Those who suffer with their eyes on the lamb, who do it focused on the one who overcame through his suffering, they display the victory of heaven in this world as they suffer, as they give things up, as they lose by the world's definition. They display that if you have Jesus, nothing in this world can take away what truly matters to you, what truly matters at all. When we are willing to hold with a loose hand or even to lose altogether the things that everyone else is scrambling for, right, uh, then we show that we have a greater treasure. When we are willing to, for our peers to ridicule us, for following Jesus, then we walk in the steps of the one who carried the scorn of the world, but who reigns in victory. You know, in the seven messages to the churches in, in chapters two and three, Jesus called them again and again to overcome. His promises were always in every message, in you know, seven, they were the promises to the one who overcomes. And here we see overcoming Victory in the Christian life is defined by the victory of Jesus, which came because he is the slain lamb. Because he was willing to give himself up for the love of others. Would you pray with me? (laughs) Lord, we declare the words with the song of heaven. Oh Lamb of God, worthy are you. We're not worthy, but you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. You were slain, and by your blood you ransomed us for God, people from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made us a kingdom And priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. Thank you, Lord, that you are at the center. Lord, we pray, we pray a prayer of thanks that you, slain Lamb of God, are the one who will make it right. You will fulfill the plan of God to make it right. Indeed, you are fulfilling, and you have done the mighty work to fulfill it at your cross. His kingdom is now here and getting closer. We thank you, Lord. We turn away from the idols. We turn away from the things that we've been pursuing, the ways that we've tried to make it right for ourselves. And we turn to you and we say, Lord, help us to trust in you, Lamb of God. Turn our eyes to the centre, to Jesus on the throne. Turn us away from the ways that we're trying to make our world right and help us trust in you to be the one who restores. And Jesus, Lamb of God, help us to be a people ready to follow, ready to count the cost, and with our eyes on glory because we will reign with him forever and ever. We pray it in Jesus' beautiful